Welcome to the Grace City Church Podcast, where we believe that Jesus died to reconcile us to God, to others, and to make us reconcilers. We're so glad you're here, and we pray that wherever you're watching, God is doing transforming work in you through this message. Amen, Grace City. Give the Lord a hand clap of praise. Amen. Amen. Um, I am grateful and honored to be here, um, to be with you this morning. Uh, Pastor Will gave me a more than gracious introduction and welcome, uh, but I promise you in these last several years that me and Pastor Will have been walking together, um, the, the mentorship, the friendship, the encouragement has been mutual, amen? Uh, sometimes you get in this ministry life and you feel like, am I crazy? Like, you know, is it, you look at what the world is doing, you look at what other folks are doing, you're trying to stay uh, faithful to the call that God has put on your heart, and it's good to know that you're not crazy, and at least if you are, you got somebody else that's just as crazy with you. Um, and so um, I've been encouraged by uh, his friendship over these years as well. Uh, and also, I've had the privilege over this past weekend of just being there for a part of the leadership retreat, y'all. Um, so I got to see kind of behind the scenes, uh, just a glimpse of just kind of the heart, the character, the nature of the leaders that you have. And so before I go any further, let me just say this. Um, you can't throw a rock nowadays and not hit 10 people who have legitimate church hurt. Amen? So to have a room full of over 100 leaders who love the Lord, who are submitted to the scriptures, who are praying for you, thinking about you, um, pouring into their own souls, and from that place lead this church, uh, whatever your grievances may be with grace, whatever issues you may have with different people, I hope that all of those things come from a place of deep gratitude. Because not only is that biblical and praiseworthy and excellent, but it is exceedingly rare in this day and age to have leaders with that kind of caliber of quality, of character of mind, of presence of the spirit. And so um, I don't want y'all to take that for granted. This ain't connected to my message. I'm just, I'm just telling y'all. <laughs> um, please don't take good leadership for granted, right? Because sometimes you're in a place, you just kind of take it for granted. It's like, oh, that's what they're supposed to do. Look at the churches around and your church experience and ask, has that been more common or is this an exception? All right? So as I want to do, um, I don't want us just to give a round of applause. I want us to do something together as a way to show our appreciation for the leadership, for the pastors, for the elders, for all those people who are actually not even in this room right now because they're serving you and your families. Um, let's do this right now. On the count of three, we're going to shout at the top of our lungs, thank you. Y'all going to do this with me? Don't leave me hanging. I'm going to do it too now. So on the count of three, we're just going to say thank you to the leaders, to the staff, to the elders, to the pastors. Oh, so y'all ready? One, two, three. Thank you. Amen. 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 If you are a leader in this room, hopefully you, you felt the, the love in, in that moment. Y'all, we're going to be in Luke chapter 10. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, go ahead and open up. We're going to dive through these passages. Uh, let me say this on the outset. Um, for some of us, these uh, words and this story is very familiar. The reason I want to walk through this a little bit slowly this morning is sometimes we read the scripture. Maybe it's just me. Maybe you're uh, more holy than I in some ways. Uh, maybe I just read the scriptures and sometimes play off the commands of God as just kind of Christian platitudes or pious statements. Like God's not really serious. He's just generalizing some vague principle that I can choose to apply to my life in some way. What I want to encourage us and maybe even challenge us with this morning is that if we to take the words of God seriously, we have got some work to do in the area of hospitality. We've got some work to do in the area of being a neighbor. 
So, uh, as in the words of Charlie Dates, the, the pastor, uh, I want to tag our exchange today with the title, Will You Be My Neighbor? Will you be my neighbor? Pray with me now. Father, God, I pray that you would just make this moment real to us, that you would make your word come alive in our hearing. God, whether this is the first time we're hearing this, God, I pray that you would give us clarity of what you're saying to us. And God, if this is the hundredth time us hearing this story, God, I pray that we would hear it with new ears today to see what you want to say through your word. Holy Spirit, you have free reign to do what only you can do. Because if you don't move, God, we will have wasted our time this morning. And so, God, above all things, with the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart, be pleasing and acceptable to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray, and all of God's people said, amen, amen. Will you be my neighbor? How many people have ever seen or heard of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood? (laughs) Amen. Y'all are really excited about this. Amen. Uh, If you have questions, you can go see these (laughs) beautiful folks. They will tell you. Uh, so Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood was it is a show that ran on public access television for over 30 years. From 1968 on, that show ran for over 30 years, and it was headlined by a guy named Mr. Rogers. Um, and the whole show was based on the premise of, will you be my neighbor? Those who have seen the show know that he always started the show and ended the show the exact same way every time. He would walk in through the front door, Pleasant, smiling, not walking too fast, but at a measured pace. And he would slowly take off his jacket, put, hang it up nice and neatly, setting a good example for the kids watching. He would take on a sweater and get dressed methodically and slowly, all the while, inviting the children that are watching to have a conversation with him. You see, he wasn't there to entertain or to just show off something. He wanted to have a dialogue and a conversation with children. It was a powerful testimony. And the end of the show was always the same as well. He would always be sitting down, looking into the camera, and he would tell every child that was watching how special they were, how he loved them just the way that they are. And there's nobody in the world just like them. And he was glad that they were his neighbor. Matter of fact, the story was so compelling that in 1969, there was a Senate subcommittee hearing about withdrawing some government funding for public access television. And Senator John Pastore was the head of that committee, and they were going to take away $20 million. Now, this is 1969 money, right? That's a lot of money today. But they were going to take away $20 million from public access television, part of which would fund Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. And after two days of hearings and conversations, Senator John was convinced that this $20 million could be spent better and he was going to revoke the funding. Well, uh, a young Mr. Rogers uh, had a chance to sit on the wood table with the microphones that we've become accustomed to seeing in these Senate conversations, and for seven minutes, off the top of his head, he began to share the power of neighbor, about the power of his show, teaching children to not be ruled by their emotions, but to take ownership of them teaching children to love one another, teaching children that the neighborhood was bigger than just their street. It's the whole world. And although this grizzly veteran senator had been unfazed and noticeably so, uh, he looked at Mr. Rogers and said, I have goosebumps listening to you. And after the end of that, just over seven minutes, the senator right then and there said, you have your $20 million. Wow. 
Why? Because even the world notices the power of genuine hospitality, genuine neighboring, genuine love. There's something attractive even to the world that says we need more of this. And that's what we're going to see in our passage today is this idea of being a neighbor. Let me lay down some foundation. Look back again with me at verse 25. Then an expert in the law stood up to test him, saying, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Do you think that's an important question? Some would say, and I would agree, that it's the most important question. Y'all, I've read the Bible a few times. I got a couple degrees in this thing. But if I was standing face to face to Jesus, I might still ask that question. Just to be sure. Because it's too much to, to, to risk on being well-intentioned but wrong. And so this is the most important question that anybody could ask. Why? Because without eternal life, nothing else that you build will matter. You raise good kids who go to good schools and marry the right person and get a good job, and they don't know God, it doesn't matter. You're successful and wealthy and comfortable and go on vacations every year to exotic places, and you serve your family well. Without Jesus, it doesn't matter. And also, the flip is true, that with eternal life, that gives us the courage to live in such a way that doesn't put us at the center of our lives. We sacrifice and we love and we forgive even though it hurts. Why? Because we have eternal life. And that's what matters. And no matter what season we may find ourselves in, for those who know Jesus and Jesus knows them, for us who have eternal life, there is nothing that can defeat us in this world. They can kill the body. They can take the riches. But we are still secure in Christ. And so would you agree with me that this is the most important question? What must I do to inherit eternal life? And look how Jesus answers. What is written in the law? He asked him, how do you read it? And this is an expert in the law, and so he has the right answer. He's read Deuteronomy 6.5 and Leviticus 19, where he's quoting from. And he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. He added a couple things. That's all right. And love your neighbor as yourself. He's just quoting what he's been taught from childbirth, that this is the Shema, this is the commands of God. Look at what Jesus says. You've answered correctly, verse 28. He told him, do this and you will live. Now, hold up. I know y'all are astute theologians and you already caught it, but for those who may not have caught what you caught, I'm explaining it to them. It sounds like Jesus was saying, do these works and you will be saved. I know Pastor Will and Pastor Krause, they're solid biblical teachers. I know they give you the gospel every week. I know they've been explicit and clear that we are not saved by, we are saved by. That's not what Jesus seems to be saying, though. Anybody else see this and says, it sounds like Jesus says, if you do these things, you will inherit eternal life. Is that what y'all see? We find ourselves in a conundrum. Either Jesus is wrong or we are missing something important here. We know Jesus isn't wrong, so what are we missing? What does it mean when he says, do these things and you will live? You see, the problem in kind of our Western American church, we have more of a linear thinking where we say we are saved by faith 
and then works. And, and that linear thinking says these things are in a straight line and faith is what comes first, and that's true, but then we focus on faith coming first and we forget that these things aren't just linear, they're sequential. What do I mean? Sequential means one will always follow the other. And if the other doesn't follow the one, then you don't got the one. They're going to make me work today, Pastor. That's all right. Flip over to James chapter 2. That's all right. I'm ready for you. Because y'all looking real confused. James chapter 2. Turn there real quick. Uh, I'll, I'll read it if you don't want to turn, if you want to save your place. Beginning at verse 14. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but does not have works? Can such faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, stay warm, and be well fed, but you don't give them what the body needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith, if it doesn't have works, is? Faith, if it doesn't have works, is? Does dead faith save you? Can dead faith save you? It's not a trick question. No. Think about it like this. Where does an apple come from? Does it come from the tree or from the seed? Y'all like, this is definitely a trick question. I'm not going to answer. <laughs> Y'all like, nope, I'm not falling for it. Just, just, just trick about it for a second. A tree is right. What else is right? A seed is right. So where does an apple come from, a tree or a seed? Yes, <laughs> from both. And in the same way, faith planted in the spirit in our hearts will always produce the tree of good works. Just like a seed planted in healthy soil will always produce a tree of its kind. So don't think about, oh, we're saved by faith and grace in Christ alone. Don't think that Jesus is somehow missing the gospel. He's showing the power of the gospel to produce a changed life. So you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Why? Because the only way you can do this is have faith in the power of the Spirit to do this. Do this and you will live. But wanting, verse 29, to justify himself, he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? Wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? The question that I began wrestling with is how did Jesus know, and why did he include this statement of intention, seeking to justify himself? I, as good leaders, I know you're taught, as good Christians, we're, we're told that you shouldn't assume people's motives, right? You should, you should take everything that they say and that you should interpret it in the best possible way. Maybe he genuinely was confused. Maybe he really had a genuine question about, okay, God, what do you mean by that? Surely people have asked Jesus questions before. But I believe the Spirit of God inspired Luke, the author, to include that so that we would see this man for who he really was. You see, he wasn't just an expert in religious law. Jesus knew he was also an escape artist. Y'all know what I'm talking about. An escape artist always finds a way that what God is saying doesn't apply to them. You dodge, dip, dive, duck, you know what I'm saying? Like, I'm talking, like you bobbing and weaving around the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Some of y'all are doing it right now. You're thinking of a way that what I'm saying doesn't apply to your situation. 
You're thinking of a way while the Word of God doesn't apply to you because you're in some unusual circumstance. You are an exceptional case. And so God wanted to be clear that he saw past this man's words and saw his motives and said, no, you're not just an expert, you're an escape artist. I know who I'm dealing with now. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? You see, I I believe the reason he asked this question and wanted to justify himself, because he said the words, love your neighbor as yourself, but I believe, and this is a little Holy Spirit guessing, I believe he had somebody in mind. I just want to be sure, God, like you say love everybody, but not everybody, everybody. Surely there's some, somebody who can cross the line, somebody who's gone too far and done too much, somebody who doesn't deserve love or forgiveness. Surely, God, you don't mean everybody. Jesus took up the question, verse 30, and told a story. That a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him. Everybody say stripped him. Beat him up and fled, leaving him half dead. Everybody say half dead. A priest happened to be going down that road. When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. In the same way, a Levite, when he arrived at the same place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan on his journey came up to him, and when he saw the man, he had compassion. We got a little bit of work to do. It's important, these words that we just repeated together, it's important that we realize that this man was stripped naked and unconscious. Why? Why is it important for us to realize this man was naked and not speaking? As a missionary friend shared with me, the way that you would identify somebody's status, somebody's tribe, somebody's culture in the ancient Near East was how they talked and how they dressed. And so with none of the markers of who this man is, how important he might be, how wealthy he might be, is he part of my tribe or not, with none of the markers of identification or association, we find ourselves with somebody in need. Now, this is a fictional story, so let's not try to probe into the mind and hearts too far of why the priest and why the Levite walked past them, but I do know that this is a real scenario because the trip from Jericho to Jerusalem Um, is 17 miles, and it is a notoriously dangerous road. That's why Jesus is using it, because people would know, oh, you was on that side of North Charleston. Okay. I know what you're talking about. He was in Ackerby. He was in Back to Green. Okay. He was using a real example of a real dangerous road so that his, his hearers would know, okay, this story would make sense. And we don't know exactly why, but I could take some guesses. Why would the priest and the Levite walk past a man in need? Maybe it was because of biblical purity, right? For a priest or a Levite to touch a dead body, they would become ceremonially unclean, and maybe they assumed the man was dead. Maybe. Maybe they just wanted to get home. They didn't have time for this. Maybe they they thought about their own safety, and what if the robbers are still nearby? I'm not equipped to to handle that. But we do know, verse 33, Jesus, as he oftentimes does, brings up race again and and says a Samaritan on his journey. Now, it is hard for us to overemphasize the deep hatred that Samaritans and Jews shared, more on the Jewish side than anything. Why? 
because Samaritans were a half-breed of people, Jews who had compromised with the world and had marriages and children with the Assyrians and other peoples. And so the Jews saw them as unholy and corrupt, unlovable, idol worshipers, outside of God's goodness and God's grace, and definitely outside of God's covenant. But he intentionally brought up a Samaritan as a despised people. And when the Samaritans saw him, he had what? compassion. I don't know if he had time. I don't know if he had extra money. I don't know if he had safety. I don't know if he had anything else, but he did have compassion. And compassion is a little bit different than pity, isn't it? Because if we're honest, pity is what drives most of our benevolence in this world. But pity will only take you so far. You will only allow pity to inconvenience your life so much. But when it's genuine compassion, not because I see his clothes and he's a wealthy man who could pay me back one day, not because I hear his dialect and I realize he's part of my tribe, and so I look out for my people. For all this man knew, as soon as this guy woke up, he would have been a Jew who hated him. And none of that mattered because he had compassion. And that compassion moved him to do what? He went over to him, bandaged his wounds, pouring on olive oil and wine. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him. And when I come back, I'll reimburse you for whatever extra you spend. Does that sound like pity to you? Does that sound like dropping some coins in the jar on your way to church, on your way to work, on your way to the thing that you planned on doing? Or does that sound like such a compassion that moved him to disrupt whatever he had going on, whatever he was doing at great risk to himself, and says, no, this man needs a neighbor. This man needs a neighbor. Verse 36, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? Was this the question the man asked? So, did, did the man ask how to be a neighbor? No, no, no. He asked, who is my neighbor? And it is beautiful because Jesus gives that question no concern. Like, he's not concerned with that man's question. Why? Because you're asking the wrong question. You see, he, like us, is asking God, who is worthy of my generosity? Who is worthy of my time? There's a phrase called the deserving poor. Do you know where that came from? That came from the civil rights movement dismantling the government protections from black and brown folks being able to receive welfare benefits. And the moment that a mostly white person benefit became used for, to help black and brown folks, all of a sudden welfare became a bad thing. And so we had to create a category for how we cannot help people who need help. And so the phrase deserving poor was born and says, if you contributed in any way to your circumstances, you don't deserve help. Here's the problem, y'all. Show me that in the Bible and we can talk. Show me how someone's contribution to their own circumstances changes how we respond. I'll take chapter and verse. The Bible says to love your enemies to resuscitate someone back to life, even if they get up and with that life, take yours. 
So Jesus isn't concerned about who the neighbor is. He's only concerned with how we can be the neighbor to someone who needs the neighbor. He's not concerned with us drawing our lines and our circles around tribes, around people, around practices, around all those things and saying, oh, those people deserve it, these people don't. He's not concerned at all with that. He only answers the question that he wants to ask, and the question that he wants to ask us today is how are we being a neighbor? Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And the man answers correctly again, the one who showed mercy to him. The one who showed mercy. Then Jesus told him, go and do the same. Here's where it's going to get tricky for us. Because if he would have just ended the story with the story, we would have been off the hook. But no, the Scriptures records this command because it's for us, too, to go and do the same. The same what? The same thing that the Samaritan did for the stranger. The same thing that the Samaritan did for the man whose name he did not know, whose tribe he was unaware of, and yet showed mercy and compassion. I know what you're thinking. Well, I mean, I, I got stuff to do. I don't, I, don't, I don't know if I got margin for this. I don't, I don't know if I got time for this. Uh, what about my own safety? What about, what about my kids being exposed to those people? Oh, yeah, I ain't going to talk back today. That's all right. I'm going to get my car and go home after this. Uh, if you got questions, email Pastor Will, right? <laughs> but all the excuses... Just like Jesus was unconcerned with the man's questions, I promise you he's unconcerned with ours. God, what about my safety? What about, what, what about my vacation that I wanted to take? I'm about to pull some stuff out of that. What about my time? What about my family? What about me, God? And he is us unconcerned. Not that it doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter most. What matters most is go and do the same. Just go and do the same. I know you don't think they earn it. I know they're going to fall back into that ditch again. You've got to pull them out again. I know. I don't care. Go and do the same. Let me give you four practical ways where we can show mercy and compassion right where we are. I'm going to give you the four, and I'm going to unpack them, then I'm going to get out your way. One is proximity. Two is generosity. Three is creativity. And four is productivity. First, one, the first way that we can show mercy and compassion is through proximity. Let's be honest, y'all. The, the, the problems of the world are outside of our reach. Like, we hear about these tragedies all the time around the country and around the world, and we feel so powerless because our hands are too short. But I promise you, there's some issues right here in Charleston that we can get out and touch. There's some school boards that we need to have some parents on. There's a police force we need some Christians on. There's some government officials that we need to be praying for and engaging with, right? There's things right here that through the virtue of our proximity, the Samaritan wasn't going to look for somebody who's been robbed. Just as he was living life, going about his way, he saw a need, and he didn't make an excuse for why he wasn't the person to meet that need. Our proximity is the first way we should be compelled to show mercy and compassion. But also through our generosity. You see, there's some of us, wait, wait let, me, let me say this in a more biblical way, sorry. Uh, all of us can be generous 
Because where our hands are too short to reach, sometimes our dollars can go and do some good. I, don't, don't start bobbing and weaving right now. <laughs> don't start doing it. I, I, I'm a college student. We barely make it. Like, don't start making excuses. Don't start accepting yourself from the word of God right now. We can all be generous. Maybe not to the same degree, maybe not in the same ways, but all of us can use the resources that God has given the richest planet on the, on the, on the, on the earth. All of us have inherited that wealth in one way or the other, and we can all do something with our resources. Who are you giving to? Who are you supporting outside of you and yours? Proximity, generosity, and also creativity. You see, the reality is some of us have been gifted. I say us. I mean y'all because I don't have this gift at all. Uh, some of y'all have been gifted with the ability to take something in your mind and make it real. You can draw. You can write. You can sing. And God has given you this gift to compel people to move their emotions, to give them imaginations and their thoughts. You have been given this gift to create. Have you considered how that can be used to do mercy and compassion? Or have you just thought that was your hobby? That was your side hustle? Have you realized that God may have given you that so that in this way you could go and do the same? And maybe that's not you like me. Uh, maybe you're more like me and you're more not creative, but you're productive. Right? You're a business owner. You're a CEO. You have risen the ranks of the corporate America because you have been able to produce something with your hands or your intellect. Have you considered the ways in which you can show mercy and compassion in a boardroom? Some of y'all are in rooms where you can advocate for people getting a livable wage, where you can advocate for people getting paternity and maternity leave, and that is mercy and compassion. Some of you own a business and you think it's just for you. And it's not. And I know what you're thinking. Man, we're, we're barely making it. How, how can I pay my employees more? We're, we're barely making the rent. We're barely making the lease payment. We're barely covering payroll. What if you were more committed to doing mercy and showing compassion than you were about keeping your business open? What if you would rather shut down the company or lose your job because you advocated for the right thing. What if God wasn't as impressed with your excuses for why you can't as you are? What if our rationalizations weren't as impressive to God as they sound in our own mind? What if God is really serious about telling us to go and do the same? What if he's not joking, y'all? Proximity, generosity, creativity, productivity, these are the ways that we can show mercy. But what was the original question? Y'all remember? How do I inherit eternal life? You see, we ain't just talking about hospitality and being nice. We're talking about the fruit and the marks that you know Jesus. We're talking about the proof that you actually know Jesus. Parents, what if the thing that would help your child to see that Jesus is real 
is them having a smaller Christmas because some of that money needs to be given to people that they don't even know. What if they don't need another explanation about Christianity? They need an example and a demonstration of Christianity's power to change their parents' priorities. What if we weren't so afraid of protecting our children from the world that we equipped our children to engage the world and see a God who loves people who may not love them back? That a God who loves people that may not ever do good to them back? What if we would have to lose our children to a liberal progressive theology that says you've got to throw away the God of the Bible in order to do the things the Bible commands? What if the truth of who God is and the love that the world so desperately needs to see is one and the same thing? What if they just need to see it, parents? Not from me on this stage, not from the kids' workers in the back, but from you. Throughout the week, saying, no, we can't go out tonight. Why? Why? Because we, we want to save somebody so that if we meet somebody in need, we have something. No, we can't do that yet. Why? I don't know. God may want us to have this money. We, when an opportunity comes up, we want to be ready. Why can't I play all these sports? Well, because we, we can't have every night of the week booked. Because what if somebody needs us? What if we need to have a family over for dinner? What did y'all think Jesus meant when he said, go and do the same? It may not have been all of this, because sometimes, like me, we read the scriptures and we think God is not as serious as he is. We think God really understands our circumstances. Hey, you know, God, you know I would, right? God, you know I would, because now is not a good time. You know, we just got these, we got these kids, man. We just, our house is too small. Finances are too tight. Once I get that next promotion, then, yo, man, then God, man, I'm going to be generous. Once I get out of college, then, uh, man, I'll be, oh, God, I'll be. What if you were serious about saying go and do this thing? The question in front of us, y'all, is not who is our neighbor. Who can we qualify and disqualify as recipients of our generosity, love, and compassion? But the question that Jesus is only concerned about is how can we be a neighbor to anyone who needs a neighbor? That's the question on the table. And what hangs in the balance is do we know God? Not are we nice people, but do we know God? Because we've received so much from him. Do y'all hear these last words? Because it sounded real familiar to me when I read them. It may sound familiar to you. Listen to them. The next day, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him when I come back. I'll reimburse you for whatever extra you spend. That sound familiar to you? That sounds familiar to me. That sounds like the scriptures that say that anyone who gives up mother and father and house and home, that when Jesus comes back, I'm going to make it whole. It sounds like God who says, I'm going to call you to suffer and to sacrifice and to serve, but when you see my face, I promise you it'll be worth it. None of us is going to go to heaven feeling like God owes us something. None of us is going to see God face to face and be like, ah, I don't know if it was worth it. I oftentimes hear people say, man, when I get to heaven, I'm going to talk to my, you know, my, my grandma, my mom, my brother, my sister. Was, oh, praise God, you might. <laughs> but here's what I know. You might forget about your child for a thousand years once you see God face to face. 
You might forget that you birthed somebody for a thousand years when you see God face to face. Why? Because when I come back, I'm going to reimburse you. When I come back, it'll make sense. When I come back, no man is going to think that God owes me anything. And so in this life, we live as sacrificial postures of servants. And in this life, we love people who hate us. We love people who don't deserve it. We love people the world tells us to throw away. We make our lives small so that other people can fit in it. Not because it makes sense. Not because it grows the church. Not because it's the best thing for you. Because one day when you see God, you're like, yeah, it was worth it. Yeah, it was worth it. Yes, it was worth it. Why? Because some of those people that you opened up your homes and your life to, you may not see it happen, but when you get to glory, you might see some of them there. Because they didn't just hear about the gospel. They didn't just hear about this story about a man dying. They, they saw it in power. And somebody making space in the living room for them. About somebody putting their kids on the floor so they could stay in a room with them for a couple of weeks because they lost their home. About someone who they didn't know, but that loved them. I'm going to say this and I'm going to sit down. God is calling us to love people in such a way that other people should think we're getting something out of it. Like, he's calling us to a, such a radical love and hospitality that other people should be suspicious. They should be like, man, this has got to be a prank. No one would love me like this. No one would do this for me. Like, no one, no one, no one does this. Like, our love should be so lavish and so without prerequisite that people are suspicious of it. They think we're getting something out of it. That's how we know we're practicing biblical hospitality. That's how we know we are loving the way that God tells us to love. That's how we know that we are going to do the same. I love the fact that Jesus doesn't tell us what happened when this man woke up. Because if he was a Jew, he would have been excommunicated from his family, having been touched by a Samaritan. He was a wealthy man. Maybe he paid him back 10 times over. If he was impoverished, maybe the Samaritan would see that man next week on the same ditch, on the same road. But I love the fact that the word of God doesn't include it. Why? Because it doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how the story ends. It doesn't matter whether they became friends and golf buddies and they have brunch together once a month. It doesn't matter. What mattered is the Samaritan saw someone who needed a neighbor and chose to be that man's neighbor. Would you pray with me now? Father, God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the example that Jesus the Christ has given us in this story, that you call us to be the neighbor to those who need a neighbor. You call us to love in such a way that it seems ridiculous to the outsider. I thank you for the gift of eternal life, which changes the calculus for us. It's, it allows us and empowers us to say yes to our fellow man, to serve our fellow man, to sacrifice for our fellow man. Because whether we get anything out of it in this life or not, one day when we see you, it'll all be worth it. God, help us to be this kind of people today and every day till you return. In Jesus' name we pray.
Amen? Amen. Thank you for listening to the Grace City Church Podcast. Whether this is your first time with us or you find the Lord moving you to engage differently or just learn more about who we are, we encourage you to find us at our website at www.thegracecity.com to explore all of the ways that you can give, connect, and engage. Thank you again for being with us. Now go live as image bearers of the King.